Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is a long-form interview podcast where Kurt and I have in-depth discussions with researchers, practitioners, and occasionally an accidental behavioral scientist. In this episode, we spoke with author and economist Andrew Wagner. Andrew's new book, The Economics of Online Gaming, is just being released, and we wanted to get his take on how economic decisions get made in online games. Yeah, but of course, our discussion went way beyond economics. Of course it did. Would you expect anything less? Not a bit. One of the central themes in the book is about reputations and how those reputations matter when it comes to the way players behave. For instance... A very positive reputation could lead other players to be more likely to work with you, but could also lead them to take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. In this game, Andrew discovered that a bad reputation set people against him, but it also had some unforeseen benefits in the game, economically speaking, of course. Of course, economically speaking, yes. (laughs) It is fascinating stuff. And Andrew commented that economics is often thought of as an intimidating and math-heavy subject, and that it's considered inaccessible for people who really don't like numbers. Uh However, however, we all like drama, and drama was found in video games, and that gave Andrew a perfect forum to discuss economics. So we'll have links to the book in the show notes. Fantastic. So do you think we have drama on the show? Drama! (laughs) Okay, maybe we should tone down the drama, all right? All right, but if you haven't checked it out, Tim and I have launched a new podcast called Weekly Grips. Maybe there's some drama in that. Totally. Oh, it's super dramatic. <laughs> because because in Weekly Grooves, we take a topic in the news that week and we take a look at it through a behavioral lens. It's only about 15 minutes long and we know that you will love the drama that we take out of it. <laughs> Dramatic drama. Dramatic drama. And, uh, you know, and we love your feedback on it once you've had a chance to listen. Yeah, and we'd also like to remind you that Behavioral Groups thrives because of loyal listeners in more than 100 countries and on the reviews and ratings that you give us. You see Apple's algorithm for making recommendations to people who are looking for new podcasts considers how many people have rated and reviewed a podcast and how recently those reviews were made. So we would appreciate you taking a moment to scroll down to the bottom of your app and give us a quick rating. It will go a huge, huge way in getting the word out about behavioral groups. That is so true, Kurt. And once you've finished giving us that five star rating, we hope you'll sit back (laughs) in your groovy podcast listening chair. Groovy? Yeah, with a fine cup of economic drama. And enjoy our discussion with Andrew Wagner. Andrew Wagner, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast Studios. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, well, we're happy that you're here, too. Really- We've known you for a couple Many of years. Almost a couple of years now, because you've been coming to the, the Behavior Groups meetup. So. Yeah, and I have to say, I feel like being on your podcast is like earning a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm so happy. 
you know, we do. High five, Kurt. Are we going to have to get a, a little medal now for yeah, you? Yeah, I would, and, I like, would wear the it. lifetime achievement. You're going to get the little certificate <laughs> that you can wear. We'll have a special name badge for you when you come to the Is next meeting. Is it possible oh. to get a lifetime achievement before you're 35, though? <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. Oh, right. I just like that's this. what it feels like anyway. Okay. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so, Andrew, we always start off with a speed round, as you know. So we're going to get that going. And I will start the, the speed round today. Go ahead. Because I just said I'm going to start the speed round, and <laughs> that's how this works. <laughs> all right? All right. Coffee, tea, soda. It has to be tea. Tea. Yeah. All right. There you go. Okay. Life, the rest of your life without a laptop or the rest of your life without a mobile phone? Uh, I could go without the mobile phone. Ooh, a 30, uh, under 35. I think this may be the first time we've had Possibly. Uh, somebody under 35. Chief, pick that one. I, All right. I have multiple laptops and I don't want to get rid of any of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay. So, uh, which is more important, an economics lesson that you accidentally get from an online game or to intentionally use an online game to teach economics? Um, I don't know. I would say those are equally important. <laughs> really? Okay, great. Well, let's talk about that. So, um, so your book, mm-hmm. uh, which is coming out very shortly, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but by the time, by the time we produce this, uh, the book will have come out. It is the economics of online gaming, uh, from the business expert press talks about the economics of a specific online game. Tell us a little bit about the book. Why, why should readers pick up the book? Well, the idea is that, and I know economists won't like it when I say this, but economics is kind of boring. Oh my gosh. I and will, I will I, agree with that 100% I can't and I have an you economics. Just said that out yeah. loud. I have an economics undergrad and you know, there you go. All of our economics <laughs> listeners are just tuning out now. Well, <laughs> it's, it's tough because economics is hard. And if you can get over the fact that it's hard, then you have to still find a way to get over the fact that it's not very exciting for most people. So the idea that I'm trying to do is make it a little more interesting by focusing on those human psychological things instead of just talking about the math behind how people make decisions. It's showing the people behind the math first and giving them some kind of story. And stories, I think, are far more interesting than math. Economists might disagree about that, but that's... <laughs> you know, the number of economists, I, I, would, I would actually think most economists would actually agree with that. Well, well so, that's good. There you go. <laughs> yeah. They may not understand how to do it, but they would agree with that fact. So, But you actually bring in a really interesting perspective because it's not just a narrative or a story. It is this utilizing an online gaming environment that you lived through as these lessons on economics. Is that a fair way of stating it? Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. The reason that this kind of exists at all is because I learned economics as I was playing this game, and I didn't know anything about economics. I hadn't taken any formal classes I didn't know any of the terminology. And then I went to college and I already knew all this stuff because I had already seen it and I had seen it through the people making decisions. So did you think you had sort of a natural tendency towards understanding what economics was? I, I don't know. I think probably. But I think what's more important is that I had a natural curiosity. 
Mm. And it was, let's try something and see what happens. So and, you try something and see, you see what happens in, in the game. Uh, at some point, you decide to write a book about it. What, what caused you to write the book? I, I actually was a reluctant writer, I suppose. <laughs> not, not too many of them. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Okay, so, but, but what are the circumstances? I played this game. I learned everything that I knew about economics, and I was a sophomore in college. I was telling my classmates, this is why I chose to study economics. And they thought that the story was powerful enough that it would be useful for somebody else, which was amazing to me. Because two months before that, I had actually deleted all of my data. Like, I thought it was so worthless that I had just deleted all of my data, didn't care. And they said, no, you should, you should write that down. So I started writing. Wow. How long did it take to recreate the data? I don't know if I ever fully recreated <laughs> all of the data. <laughs> wow. So, so for our listeners, tell us a little bit. So what was the game that mm-hmm. you immersed yourself in and that you learned these lessons from? And tell us a little bit about how it works. So I think to give the paint that picture. Yeah. So if anybody has ever played RuneScape, which would probably be a younger generation than you guys. <laughs> oh, uh, there was a ow. nice dig. <laughs> All right. Anyway, keep going. Roots. Okay, yeah. I'm taking away that lifetime achievement award. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very similar to RuneScape. The, the name of the game is Eternal Lands. Okay. And it functions like a normal economic system in some ways. Okay. At, at the base level, you have the skill called harvesting. And harvesting was collecting coal and iron ore or flowers and then the next skill was alchemy, and you would use alchemy to make iron and steel bars out of the coal and iron ore, or you would make what's called magic essences out of the flowers okay. and stuff like that. And then you had these other skills that used those products. There was crafting, which would make magic rings and medallions that would make you a better fighter or teleport you places. Those used gold and silver bars that were made through the alchemy skill. Okay. There's manufacturing, which made weapons and armor to fight with using steel and iron bars. Okay. Um, then there was the kind of side skills that people didn't focus on as much, like summoning. You could use essences to summon monsters to help you fight. Or magic. You could use magic to heal yourself. Or the potion skill. You could make special potions. And so the objective of the game is literally survival and just gaining more skills and resources, et cetera. What would the, you... The objective of the game, it's something that's kind of hard for non-gamers to understand, is there's no objective. Okay. It's, it's kind of like a, a chat room with a game attached to it. Okay. The, the idea is that you're, you're there to have fun being entertained with other people who are doing a similar activity. And essentially, the objective is to, if say, if you're a fighter, become a better fighter so you can fight more difficult monsters, which sounds like not that exciting, but... But no, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually human motivation, right? And yeah. so we talk a lot about, you know, why people do what they do on the, on the program. And one of those aspects is there's, there's extrinsic motivation and various different things of getting things in different elements. But then there's this intrinsic motivation, which really comes at this element of mastery. And so uh, we talk about that, like the, 
the idea of a, of a video game, if, if I was to go back into the, the very simple video games that I play, right? Uh, you know, the Pac-Man, if, if you go through level one of Pac-Man and, you know, the first couple of times you play it, you, know, you die because it's hard and different, don't understand. It, and then pretty soon you get better and then you get better. And pretty soon you like master that and you get through level one of Pac-Man and you get to level two and it's the same. You know, you're not going to continue to play that. No, you, no, no you one's going to. No one's going to sign up for that. You need to level up. You need to have that bigger challenge. And what I'm hearing you say is that the the this game in and of itself doesn't necessarily have levels, but you can. But just by the very basic thing of it, the more skill, the more knowledge, the more resources, et cetera, that you gain, you're going to be able to to take on bigger challenges, and so it becomes part of the the motivations internally inside of that game. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, the one thing I would add is there are levels within each specific skill. Okay. So if you're trying to produce something with the manufacturing skill, you have to be a certain level to produce like an iron shield and you have to be a certain level. To, Got it. So the objective is I want to get to a higher level so I can do this other thing that also doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's still entertaining for some it, reason. But it's entertaining, and there's an element of of showcasing your your ability to do it. I mean, you know, in many of these uh, types of situations, it's it's this internal identity that you have, and and thus you want to make sure that you maintain that and grow that. So, tell us about how economics comes into play in the game. So what's really interesting about this is economics happened to be just about everywhere. What was really interesting is the very first thing I discovered that I would say is economics-based is if you're producing an iron sword, your iron sword is exactly the same as everybody else's. And if you're trying to sell it, you can't say mine is better because no one will believe you. Yours is exactly the same as everyone else's. So if you want to compete with other people... You have to compete by saying, mine's the same as theirs, but I'm selling it for cheaper. Mm. That was the very first economics idea that I picked up on because I actually tried that. I said, my swords are better and no one believed me because it wasn't true. (laughs) But I could say, my swords are cheaper and people would take that. That was the very first economics lesson that I picked up. I had no idea that it was economics. Give us some other examples of other economic lessons that, that are coming from the, from the game. Okay, yeah. Um, another one that I picked up on was what people were doing in this game was when they want to produce some swords and shields, first they would go and harvest all of the materials themselves. Then they would do all of the alchemy themselves to turn it into iron and steel bars. And then they would do all of the manufacturing all by themselves. And what I found out was if there's a team of people working together, it can be done faster. You talked about that a little bit. You, you, you mentioned in the book that you were a lone person yeah. and then there were these guilds, which are these teams that you talked about and you got recruited and you were a little skeptical at first, right? Yeah. And then you joined and it was like, oh, actually I kind of see it. And then you actually said, hey, I'm a low-level guild member. I want to actually, with your brother who played the game, right? You mm-hmm. went out and you you said, hey, we can form our own guild and you know, be at the top of it, which is gets more of the resources and more of the stuff, right? Yeah, the, the thing that we realized was the high-level guild leaders were hoarding all of the resources that they're 
guild members collected and my brother's idea was well we should be those guys <laughs> it's kind of i mean you, you think about it and the, the 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 translation i took from that is again when you look at when you look at the way the world operates you look at corporations you look at government you look at most any type of thing the people at the top are rewarded the most they they get the benefits of all the people under them. if it's a almost the big ponzi not ponzi what is it the, the ponzi schemes no the- where it's it's not ponzi where you you actually have the multi-level marketing oh, multi-level you know, marketing, yeah where yeah. you know the person who starts and they recruit two people and then each of those recruit two people and then they recruit two people and all of a sudden you get a little bit of each of those pieces and that person at the top of the pyramid uh, is it doing... makes a lot more than the person at the bottom of the pyramid. Exactly. And that's so, growing. And that's growing. The, the disparity is, is, is continuing to anyway, grow. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you learn, all right, so so this this economic principle of, uh, I think, what Adam Smith was talking about, right, where you actually have uh, specialization and, you know, uh, so that the pin manufacturer manufactures pins and the, you know, the soap maker makes soap and you trade using money in various different pieces. What else? So that the economic idea behind that is actually uh, economies of scale. Just, mm-hmm. just if there are any economists listening to make sure I mention that so they know that I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were a couple of other things that uh, you mentioned that were was a little bit of a surprise because my neoclassical economic training didn't include information about reputational capital. And you talk about reputational capital as being really important in the book. Yeah, it was important in the game. Um, and it's more important in some industries than in other industries. It kind of depends on how easy it is to switch to a different service. Okay. So everybody thinks of Comcast as just having a horrible reputation, but how easy is it to switch to another internet provider? Most of the time, you probably can't do that. So they don't have to care about their reputation because you have to use their service. In this game, it was really easy for somebody to just buy from somebody else. So if you are selling the same stuff as someone else, but you have a bad reputation, people won't deal with you. And that's hard, right? And yeah. that that damages you in the overall scope of the game, right? Well, and particularly when you talked about, you know, that iron sword that you're producing is no different than the iron sword that Tim's producing. Mm-hmm. And so outside of price, then the only other differentiation piece that you can probably have is aspects of your reputation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you and you and you mentioned how uh, if you have a negative reputation, it's 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 hard to get just to neutral, right? Yeah, what I found, uh, unfortunately, the hard way was that if you already have a negative reputation and you're trying to repair that, people will not believe you. They will not take you seriously, and they will say, "Well, you're just you're just trying to fool me into thinking you're a good person, so you can betray me later." Wow, <laughs> that was very suspicious, huh? But but again, I can go back to real life, and I, we were talking before we started recording of some of the work that I used to do when I 
was first started off with in in business is I did a lot of team building programs and a lot of different pieces. And Tim, right. you've you've been with me in a couple of these that I still do on on the occasion because it's good work. It's, it is. It's good it's, fun it's work. Important. And and but uh, but part of that is is there's one uh, event that we do. It's called the Electronic Maze. And I lead it, and basically it's this carpet that is a six by nine, looks like a checkerboard. Uh, when you step on the squares, some of them beep, some of them don't. Teams have to find a path through. There's some other rules and different things in there. Can't talk, varied other things. But me as a facilitator, and this is something we do on purpose, is that I will be there. I give them the rules. I'm kind of the, the person in charge. Um, and at some point, I will start leading people through the maze. And they, you know, they can't talk. So I'm just pointing at things, go, step here, step here. And they step and it's good and it's good. And at one point in the game, I actually point them to the wrong square, one that beeps. And then I laugh. I'm always just like, (laughs) and and from there on, I, I will always point to the right squares. But they don't trust you at all. They, nobody has ever right. trusted me after that fact, right. regardless of every single time. I mean, and, and if they were paying attention, they would notice that, yes, I am pointing at, at the right square every single time. I am trying to help them out from that point onward. It seems very similar to to what this is. And I think that it, it translates out of these games and simulations into a real-life lesson, right? That, hey, building up that bad, the, you know, when you screw somebody over they remember that for a lot longer than any positive things that you do. So. Reputational capital is hard to maintain. Yeah, it's very hard to maintain. It's it's hard to build up in the first place, but it's really easy to destroy. It's extremely easy for it to just slip away if you if you mess up or if you intentionally lead people to the wrong checker. Oh. That's... What were the things that you did to uh, once your reputation had been tarnished? Right. What kinds of things did you do to build up your reputation in the game? So after the reputation had been tarnished, which I'll I'll leave that story for another time. Or people can read the book. Yeah, or they can read the book. <laughs> it's it's a fun story. Um, I at first I I tried to apologize and say, well, we were mistaken. We 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 didn't mean to to do that, and. The, the apology was not accepted. And then the other thing was, well, let's rebrand our guild. Let's change the name of it so people don't remember what happened. And the people who were in the guild actually said, no, we're, we're fine with this name. We'll, we'll just accept our bad reputation. And I thought about it and I thought, okay, I'll just play as a villain and see what happens. This might be more interesting than playing the same way everyone else does. And how did that turn out? It was spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. In, in what getting... way? What, what, what to elaborate on spectacular? It, it was so much more fun to be different within the guild, within the within the game, within the game. Within the game. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily playing as a bad player. It was more fun and more entertaining just to play differently than the way other people did. And, and that's an interesting piece, because you, you, you talked about uh, the idea of, of being open to change, right? And that new information coming in. Uh, like, like, for instance, one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning before we, we, we got on air was, again, that 
you started to do things different. And when you first did that, the first response from everybody was anger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was the first response to just about everything that I did. And <laughs> it was always anger, but no one ever tried to figure out how I was doing this stuff or why I was doing it. And they always thought, well, he's just trying to ruin the game for the rest of us. So I would repeat that message because it was more entertaining for me to say that I'm just trying to ruin the game for the rest of you because that's what they thought I was doing. Building into that reputation and building upon that. And so, but I think the interesting piece is that the initial reaction to new information or to new ways of doing something wasn't uh, the idea of what can I learn from that or why are you doing that beyond this initial trying to screw us over piece to this idea of it's just this emotional reaction that says, Oh, this is different. Crazy. Stop. You know, don't, don't screw it up for the rest of us. Kind of a status quo bias that was going on. Mm, very much so. Yeah. It was very much a status quo bias. And what was interesting is that the people who were upset were the people who currently held the power in the game. Mm. The people who were new, they didn't care. And the people who were on the weaker side, they didn't care either. So they were, they were more risk tolerant Yeah, if you were coming from a deficit, if you, were, if you were behind, if you were weaker. Yeah. My understanding of it was the people who already were powerful, they had a system that worked for them that made them powerful and they liked it. And what I was doing was changing that system and forcing them to have to consider some other strategy. Yeah, the power dynamics. And again, yeah. you think about real world and those parallels show up. That's a yes, they do. Very similar situation to a lot of what goes on within corporations, corporations, yeah. communities. Uh, I mean, it's uh, prevalent all over. So, mm. one of the other things that we wanted to talk about was incentives inside of the game. So can you talk a little bit about what kinds of incentives were structured into the game and how did those impact people's behavior playing the game? Yeah, that was one of the things that was really interesting to me when I was playing the game too. When you produce an item, you get experience points for producing that item. And if you're producing a more advanced or higher level item, you get more experience for that. If you sell it, then you also get gold coins. And the trick was everyone was complaining that when they sold things, they were losing money. Because if you added up the value of everything used to make it, that was more than what they sold it for. Mm. And so everyone's saying, we can't make money, we can't make money. But they were still doing it because they actually cared about the experience points. They didn't actually care about the money, but it was strange their voices said, we can't make money, we don't like this, but their actions were, we're still doing this anyway because this is actually what we value. Right, and so again, understanding the underlying motivations of the people inside of the game, 
the outward appearance of getting gold coins, right, is mm-hmm. the idea that that's what was really key. But underlying it was really, you know what, I need these experience points in order to level up to get to that next level, which we talked about earlier, which is why people are doing this. They're not, the the gold coins inside of the game help in certain areas, but that doesn't really get you to the next level to be able to move up or at least maybe not as, as I don't understand the game fully, but. Well, in, in classical economics, we think about rational agents. Was there something rational or irrational about these people who are saying, uh, I don't care about money, but in fact they do? Vice versa. Oh, excuse me. That's right. They're saying they do care about money, but in fact they're, they're not acting in a way that's consistent with, with that. I think their actions, I think their actions were rational. They were acting in a way that was rational by producing stuff and selling it at a loss because they were still benefiting with the experience points. But their words were not rational. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, in, in, in economic theory, it's about utility, right? We, we define why do you do things in order to maximize your utility. And so it's, it's defining what utility actually is. And what you were saying is that the utility for these people was more in the experience points as opposed to the gold coins. And yet their voices were saying the gold coins are where my utility lies, but that wasn't what their behaviors were dictating. Right. And another thing that I thought was really funny about this was when the game started getting disrupted, the very first thing they did was appeal to the game creator and say, make a change that keeps us in power, A bit, essentially, is what they were wow. asking for. So going wow. to the government and creating rules and regulations <laughs> that's in order they, to... That's what they're uh, asking for. <laughs> you know, perpetuate the power stru- wow. uh, system that is currently in place. Wow. Uh, I, I, have, I have another question. Something else you mentioned in the book that caught my attention was this idea that having the right people make decisions for the group. Uh, I thought it was interesting that, that you framed it as having the right people make the decisions for the group rather than making the best decisions or having you know people co- collaborate in order to just produce the best decisions for the group. Uh, and tell me why you framed it that way. Maybe because I hadn't thought of framing it the other way. That's, <laughs> that might be why. <laughs> uh, but, but how but, did it come about? Yeah, but to that point, and sorry to, to yeah, no. jump in here, but where I go with this is having the right people make the decisions tends to be saying that, hey, if we have the right people in the room, we will make the right decisions. And oftentimes I see that in the real world situation too, is that by getting a good group of people and making sure that they're you know equipped to be able to make decisions in the in you know, make the, the, the types of decisions that are necessary, they will come up with the right answers. So They're much more likely to, if everybody is, especially if there's a lot of um, homogeneity in the group, if everybody is from the same background with the same opinions and the same perspectives, right. You know, uh, Oh, I would actually disagree. I think that it's going to be better if we have more diversity right. in, in the room. Oh, okay. I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. But we digress. Sorry. Sorry, Andrew. Go ahead. Answer the question that I just jumped in and answered for you. I I think also you really have to have people who are actually team players as as part of your decision-making process. And I think that's why I framed it as the right person making decisions. Because even if it's a group of people, they have to be having the same goals. 
What are the qualities that make a good team player? Oh, that is something I hadn't thought about very much. But um, I would say in the first place, they're willing to listen to other perspectives. They're willing to consider those. That might be the biggest thing, actually, is, is being willing to consider as many dis- different perspectives as possible and weigh them accordingly. So Tim would not make a good team player. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Tim. You're here. I'm, I, in, yeah. the, I'm in the room. I'm, in, I'm, I'm joking. The room. Tim, is, uh, Tim actually takes all the different perspectives. I'm the one who goes, no, my way's the right just, way. Just, it, it, isn't it just easier to have one perspective than to... If it's my like perspective, this. then it is definitely <laughs> yeah, better that way. I, I think another piece that we were talking about before we got on air was this idea of regulatory capture. You want to talk a little bit about what that is and what you found from the game in that, that situation? Yeah. So this is a spoiler, but (laughs) there's that, there's some point in the game where someone from my guild actually joins the development team, which is unusual. Most games like this have a development team of their own. They don't take players. And part of joining the development team means you have to promise not to specifically favor one group or another. And this guy did not keep that promise. He, he helped us out. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. And building into that reputation a yeah. already of you guys kind of being the rebels in the, in, the, in the group or in the game. Yeah, absolutely. We probably should not have been able to do that. but so what's the lesson learned from that so you talk about because regulatory capture happens in the real world all the time right Right. you're somebody in business and they get on the you know governmental regulation you know panel that that overviews it from a state level city council whatever what 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 are the the insights that you take from that well it's really tough to to know if someone is going to play fair but the idea is For example, if you're playing a game of Monopoly and one person is going to be the banker, but they're also one of the players, you have to at least trust a little bit that they're not going to be taking money out of the bank and giving it to whoever they want to. Cheating, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think we would call that cheating. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. and I think... uh, I think the hard part, at least from the you know the psychology of this, is you can have the best intentions. So you can be that person who gets tapped to be in the development role, and I don't know if this is the case for for the person that you were talking about. And yet, there are underlying subconscious components that lend yourself to the idea of that even just putting in the rules and regulations and not necessarily understanding that you're doing this to help the the guild that you were from or the organization that you were from. But because of the very nature of how we think, that happens. And it happens. Con- context matters. Context matters. And so it, it's, it's like going in and thinking about, oh, can we put in these rules for how the city does bids for you know getting a new road or building a new building or doing whatever that would be and if you come from an industry and you go well this is how we did our bids and I like that way and so thus you put in the rules that kind of allow that bid process to happen the way that you had done it in your old life well that tends to you know 
allow those people who that organization that did the bid that way to have a have a leg up. And it wasn't necessarily intended to do that, but it was the because of that background that you had knowing the how that works for you and you obviously did it for a reason. So, how did it, how did regulatory capture impact the other players, the other guilds? Well, it's funny because that's sort of what they were asking for when they were appealing to the game creator and asking for changes that would help them. And I actually was able to achieve that in a different way. In a more successful way, it sounds like. And it was really bad for the other players. (laughs) How did they react? Well, they, they actually never found out that this happened. So when the book comes out, they'll learn for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> or when this podcast comes out, yeah. they, they hear it from there. Wow, that, that's a much bigger spoiler than I could have ever imagined. Wow. So, so Andrew, with that, there's ethics involved here. Yes. Right? So let's talk about the ethics. Not just the ethics within the game of how that worked, but... Just ethics in general, as it as it portrays to this whole concept. Uh, you know, what are your ideas? Like, how did ethics play in how you played the game, and how your dev- the the guy, the person who went to be the developer, and the overall game mechanics? What was interesting about these ethical questions, which I, at the end of the book, I have a thing where these are suggested topics of discussion, and ethics is on almost every chapter because. There's some unethical thing. The identity that I came up with in the game was I'm going to be an unethical person because I have a bad reputation. So I'm going to play this way as this character and not necessarily the way I would do things in real life. But this is an experiment. This is a game. This doesn't really matter for the real world. However, people do behave this way in the real world sometimes. And I think that's the the key piece, right? When we think about this, are so... What were the consequences for unethical uh, behavior inside the game? It seems that you were rewarded more than punished, actually. I'm just in kind of stunned. My jaw is on the floor on that. And yet I'm thinking this is how the real world works as well. Like we, uh, we have lots of evidence of, of this happening. That we consider someone who might have who who did really well financially, uh, but might have cheated just a little bit. Let's, we kind of go, or, well, or maybe not even a little bit, maybe a lot, maybe a lot. Yeah. That there might be something admirable about that. That they might you know be be given accolades uh, for for that. Well, uh, the, uh, we had Jeff Chrysler on our hundredth episode, and he wrote uh, a, a book all about cheating and getting ahead by cheating, and it was a uh, tongue in cheek, but yet uh, he tells the story of when he presented that he came in persona to present to Dan Ariely's class down at Duke. And he was doing this whole thing about how people appreciate, you know, success and the best way to get success is to cheat. And so isn't that the right way to doing it? And he said, inevitably about 20 minutes into his presentation, somebody would meekly, well, isn't that wrong? And then he'd ask the class and he said about a third of the class would say, no, that's not wrong. And which is part of why he ended up writing the book with Dan Ariely and what they did. It's fascinating if you think about that and you go, all right, these are business or an MBA students and a third of them who are being told pretty blatantly to cheat and they don't find something wrong with with that. And that's publicly saying that, you know, out in a classroom. You have to wonder about 
the the actual number of people. And as you said, nobody knows about this, uh, some of the ethical, unethical things that were going on until now. And so it, it disheartens me. Were there other unethical actors in the game? So there, there was a, kind of a split between people who produced things and people who were fighters. Okay. And the fighters would just do anything to attack each other or find some way to to gain power over another fighter group. Yeah. Yeah. I want to switch over to music. Okay. Okay. I want to I've been waiting to ask you this question. <laughs> Andrew, what is on your playlist? What is I actually had to write this down because uh <laughs> I I listen to what YouTube tells me to listen to. It, and uh apparently my favorite band is Stained. Oh. And yeah. uh I like the Fray, Coldplay, Fuel, Green Day. Uh, I generally just listen to whatever shows up on the YouTube playlist. But one thing I realized when I was finding the answer to this question was all of these bands are from around the same time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I've always made fun of old people for listening to music from the same time period. And I realized I'm, I'm doing that now. <laughs> well, there's good, there's, there's good neurological reasons for that. That that's mm-hmm. not accidental. That yeah. that happens the way the music imprints on us. So so what's the era? When were these songs um, reaching you in your life? How old were you? I would say probably twelve to fifteen. Which maybe. is oh yeah. my god! You've just you've you've added a data point to Tim's uh, <laughs> idea here. So and I'm having confirmation bias. Yes, at this I know. <laughs> this is totally confirmatory. Uh, and uh, and what? But. Why do you like those? Uh, aside from, let's say, the neurological subconscious stuff, but why do you like that music? Well, actually, part of it is, as I was writing my book, I was using music and listening to specific songs that I was playing at the time that I was playing the game to make it easier to remember things. Were you actually listening to music while you were writing the book? Like while you were sitting at your computer writing? Yes, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm looking Kurt, at Tim Kurt, going, yeah, yeah. see? Now, now Kurt's having confirmatory <laughs> bias. On that. So does, all right, so this is a silly question. Does the game itself have music built into it? I, I know a lot of the, the games today, like my son got into techno music because it, it was played, you know, it was the background to the, the, the games that he played. Uh, this game didn't have any sounds at all. Yeah. No music, no sounds. So it was generally whatever you had playing on yeah. your own. No, no sound effects? No I, no battle sounds? No clinking of, of gold no. coins? No. <laughs> That's amazing because, I, 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 you know, I, I would ask some uh, our listeners, tr- turn on a movie and watch it with subtitles without any sound and the emotional impact is significantly reduced. Yeah. We are the, the, the audio portion of anything visual video game included is significantly enhanced by the audio. Did I just say that again? Did I, did yeah, I you said it right. You I, got it right. No, oh, okay. you got it right. Okay. <laughs> the video component is enhanced by, by the, the audio. audio. Yeah. Yeah. So to have a video game with no, with zero soundtrack is really interesting. So, but all right. So Andrew, how big was this game? How many players got onto this game at, at any point? Um, at the peak, it was about three thousand people that played. See, 
whereas RuneScape, right, or World of Warcraft are millions, yeah. right? Might be because it didn't have any music. Well, I, that would be my conclusion instantly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. So can you, 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 you work in the real world, you have clients. Mm-hmm. Do you listen to music while you're doing client work? It depends on what I'm doing. If I'm reading, I don't listen to music at all. I'm focused on what I'm doing. If I'm writing, then I'm listening to music. Wow. Can you listen to any kind of music? I can generally listen to any kind of music, but I've what I found is I don't necessarily prefer a specific genre. I prefer a specific sound. And it's something that feels like there's a soft thunderstorm happening in the background. Oh, That's like generally that. the sound that I like to listen to. And that happens in several different genres. Very a cool. soft thunderstorm. I love that description. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's pretty terrific. Okay. Andrew, thank you. This has been, I think it's very fun. You know, we're talking video games and, and economics and psychology. And oh my gosh, what more could anybody ever want? <laughs> right? And music. And, and music. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> oh, thank you for being yeah. a guest. And, and uh, thanks for being you know up to the medallion that we're going to have to give you for. I'm being. so excited. <laughs> so excited. All right. <laughs> Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our multiplayer online role playing <laughs> drama infused game brains. Drama. Drama. Multi multiplayer, though. I mean, Man. think about the the number of people that are out there. Have you ever played a multiplayer online game? See, that was my first question. I was gonna ask you that. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't either. No, I mean, I, I, have. I have not. I know my son does. Yeah, I, I know. Obviously, Andrew, who we know through our meetups, uh, he he plays them. I know lots of people that do that, but yeah, I, I was of that age where you know we played in arcades. <laughs> so I put I put, I put so quarters. School. I put quarters into those games, <laughs> and we played there. You know, that was that's how old school I am. Yeah. Well, we our, uh, pong was my first introduction. <laughs> so, so that's how far back I'm going on this. Yeah. Okay, so what, what do you want to talk about with, uh, we had a great discussion with Andrew, and he's got a cool book, and it's got a very cool perspective on the world. Where did you want to start our, our grooving session? Well, I thought it was really interesting. So just A, the perspective of looking at economics through the online game, and in specific, an online game that Andrew had his own experience in. So it was a qualitative look at what economics is very quantitative from its very nature. So now he brought some quantitative pieces into it, and I thought that was really interesting. But the qualitative aspects of what he was talking about and the responses that he got. Yeah, the behavioral responses. The behavioral responses were really cool. And I, I, it made it interesting for me. Like he said, you know, I have an economics undergrad, so I kind of geek out over some of this stuff. Really? Yeah. But well, I, I know you have an economics undergrad. Did you really geek out on economics stuff? Yes. Really? Okay. I mean, not as much as the behavioral <laughs> science stuff, but it is part of that. Cool. So. Cool. Anyway, so the reputation stuff, like the behavioral stuff that that he talked about, I thought was really interesting. And the behavioral 
uh, aspects of reputation and how reputation impacts the players in the game, I thought was really interesting. This kind of gets to a question for me of, well, how similar or dissimilar is the online player's behavior linked to real life? In other words, in other words, is real life a mirror of of how you behave in the game or not? Right. And you did some research on that. I did some research, and uh, and there, I think John Millman has done some work that says uh, that most the most of the time people are creating very very different online personalities. We're more calculative. We're more thoughtful, and that because we have time to kind of think and and prepare for this character, so to speak, that we want to be online. So you're projecting out what you can be in this game yeah. as opposed to just reacting. Now, that's really which, interesting. Which, which, which is contiguous with what Andrew was talking about, where he said, you know, I want to be, he said, I wanted to be this this good guy in the game because that's who he is in person. That's how we know him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's I, our experience with him. And and then he, <laughs> then he discovers that being a bad guy could be a good thing for the game. Like he could actually benefit from that. And he was willing to adapt to that. I thought that was amazing. Right? Well, and, and it was interesting because we know Andrew as this good guy, right? We, right. He Honorable, comes to these meetups yeah. all the time. He's super generous and nice. And to hear him talk about being the bad guy, the rogue. <laughs> right. It was it weird. It was disconnecting. It, I was looking at him and going, is this, this is I don't know you? this guy. Who is this guy? So that was weird. That yeah. was weird. Uh, I, I wanted to go back to the work, though, of online being different. Yeah. And, and I don't know about online. So this is, take this with a grain of salt. But I've done a lot of work with clients and, and people in team building where we're playing games. And this so this is this is real time. This is with real, real time, people, real people. In, it's in, not over in an internet. So maybe there's some difference there. Could be. But but again, to that facet of playing a game, they start playing the game very thoughtful. Again, usually these are work situations. They're coming in, they're feeling like they're being watched and uh, graded to a certain degree. But once they get involved and immersed in the game, what happens is that their real personalities come out and you can really look at people to see how they're playing the game mm -hmm. and you can translate that into what happens in real life. And we do a debrief after these events. And, and, and that they actually reveal, they reveal this symmetry, this, the similarity. Oh, people point out, you know, you showed up just like you do at work. And, yeah. you know, so yeah. that happens. I don't know if how, you know, Mark Millman, right, mm -hmm. did his research, if it was in a lab mm -hmm. setting I don't know or different you. pieces of that. And I don't know if, because it's online, if that there's a difference there, but I think that game part is actually... People show up in games often like they show up in real life. So if that's if that is the case, certainly the the game helped reveal things like status quo bias and preference reversal in big ways, which are really common human attributes, right? That they were willing, you know, Andrew talked about uh, people were willing to uh, to say, no, we aren't going to change the name of the guild. Because we we've had the name of the guild ever since we started, and we're not going to change it. <laughs> yeah, like man, talk about talk about status quo bias. Yeah. Even though it wasn't necessarily working for them, they're like, nope, we're just going to keep that name. Right? They had an identity. This was yeah. us, even though the identity yeah. had shifted and changed, and it was now 
being a negative component for him, I'm going to hold on to that because, damn it, it's too hard to change my name. No, it's not. No, it's super easy to change it. Yeah, and and the economics of it would have been different. So going back, though, to the the other piece that I found fascinating in this. when Oh, you, you found something else fascinating? <laughs> you, you, listeners can't see the finger the that I'm finger, pointing up at, at Tim up, right yes. now. So yes, I found other things fascinating, but <laughs> totally lost my train of thought I'm now. Sorry. Thank you, Tim. No, it is going back to trust. So when oh, yeah. he switched, when when Andrew decided to become the bad actor and then realizing that that bad actor gave him some freedom to do things that were economically in the game beneficial. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that portrays itself into real life. So what are some of those facets in real life to, if you become a bad actor, if you go rogue, uh, economically speaking, there's probably some benefits to being able to do that, to I, cheat, uh, yeah. to lie, to misguide. But what are the other costs that pe- keep people from doing that? So online, you're to the point maybe of what Milman was saying, is that you don't have, you have a different persona and you're not necessarily interacting with these people in a real life situation where, yeah. you know, that social uh context is is really there and you don't have that social contract between people. I don't know. I've seen lots of experience. I have lots of experiences in my life when I have seen people who are bad actors do well uh, financially. They've been very successful in their lives from an economic perspective. Were they good people? I recognize them as not good people. I didn't want to spend any time with them socially, but it was clear that they were killing it financially. Uh, so was there a was there a cost that they had to pay from a social perspective? I don't know. I think they still had friends. They you know they still they still got around. They still found a, a community, a tribe that they could be a part of. Well, and is that community or tribe a tribe of people who are like them? <laughs> Another more more bad actors. Yeah, or or is there? There's this other aspect, right? It's the people who see power and money and prestige which sometimes comes with being that bad actor by able to get that and want to grab hold of that. They might be good people themselves, but are drawn to that. So are you getting, you know, these fans that come up to you just because you have money or prestige or power? Yeah. So, yeah. So are there non-economic factors that keep people from, being bad in real life and what is the cost of those and do those costs outweigh the benefits that you can get plus jail time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a Bernie Madoff, uh, you know. Yeah, okay. Well, Petters, who is in a Minnesota, you know, doing the Ponzi schemes. Yeah, those are good questions. But sometimes, but sometimes, you know, that bad actors aren't necessarily to the level of offense that leads to jail time. It's just bad acting. It's lying to people. Yeah. It's being not nice to people. It's misleading people to get them excited and then not really following through on your commitments. Or going rogue. 
Or right, going kind, kind of going against the social norm in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, another thing that was uh, interesting to me that was outside of what Andrew would have anticipated from a financial perspective is that people were were willing to give up gold coins, were willing to sell things at a loss to have fewer gold coins in exchange for better experience points. Right. And to me, this sounded like preference reversal. This sounded like what we have uh, with sales reps who say, just give me more cash. But when you and I have done studies and tested the opportunity to earn more cash versus the opportunity to earn experiences, people actually perform better when they earn experiences. I, I think it goes into people are not good at understanding what really motivates them. Double Double bonus bundle on that one. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I, get, I get double experience points for that. <laughs> yes. But that's yes. very apparent in this because, as Andrew yeah. said, people stated gold is the standard. That's what I that's want. It. And that, yet, the whole the whole game is measured on gold coins. But in in the game. The reality of it is I can do more the more experience I have. The yeah. better I am at playing the game, the more enjoyment I get out of the game. While the measure for the game might be gold coins, the measure for me is my enjoyment of playing the game. But I don't realize that because, again, I'm told that gold yeah. is that. So that's what I see, but my behaviors elicit the other aspect. Exactly like we see with salespeople in the real world, they're told that money is the optimum, and yet, wow, that reality of being able to get that experience or uh, that non-financial reward, whether it be time off or yeah. a merchandise thing that they wouldn't normally buy otherwise, those are real motivators. We just don't have them at that conscious perspective, no. and they are below that level. All right. And still powerful. Very powerful. Very powerful. Okay, what else? What about regulatory uh, capture? That, that was interesting, <laughs> right? Isn't it amazing? I mean, the parallel for me instantly was Boeing, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, this is not to diss anybody at Boeing, but the fact that the uh, the FAA basically kind of turned over the reins to understand whether or not the 737 MAX was a safe plane over to the company that built it and designed it is kind of a regulatory capture thing. It is. Well, and you go into, I mean, you mentioned this pre-show, Alex Azar going yeah, from, from president of Lilly USA to being the H, what, what is he's he He's the secretary of- uh, Secretary uh, of Health. Health, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and can he bring an insider's perspective that could be really useful and valuable? Or is he- is it going to be biased because this is the industry that he came from? And we don't know the answer to this, right? But no, but, I, but I've met Alex, so I don't know him yeah. really well, but I did work at Lilly. You had some experience and with him. And I've, I've interviewed him. I've been in meetings with him. He probably wouldn't remember me from Adam, but, you know. I, I remember you from Adam. <laughs> I thank you, Tim. I The meetings that. that we've been in, you were totally impressionable on me. But but he was a, he was a I, I feel from, you know, my short time knowing him, really good guy. He was very interested in behavioral science, so I obviously had a fascination <laughs> with him or a liking of him. To, again, double bonus points. Ba-boom, ba-boom. He was asking all about right. Dan Ariely and different. Anyway, long story short, but does he, does that, knowledge of being an insider help in 
the work that he has to do as Secretary of Health because right. he understands the mechanisms for how things happen and get done. So he is able to put policies in place that are appropriate and impact the real causes of, of behavior right. and right. issues. Or, as you mentioned, that having had that insider piece, is there an implicit bias that he has that, that it lends be, it itself It could be completely into, subconscious. Exactly. It, it doesn't even have to be a, a conscious effort to, uh, to uh, be a rogue actor. Right. It could be completely subconscious. And, and, and how do you determine that? Yeah. You know, that gets to be the hard part. Now, in Andrew's case and his, you know, the guy that got on whatever that board was, was <laughs> yeah. definitely helping him. Oh, yeah. That was very explicit. Right. So in those instances, you know, regulatory capture is, is, is bad. Yeah. All right. I've got a musical question for I, you. I would expect <laughs> nothing else. Okay. So I found, so just thinking about video games... Right. Yes. Because we because we're talking about it, right? So, looking at video games compared to the music industry, here's some a couple of interesting facts. In 1976, both the music industry and the video game industry, this is including arcades and that sort of thing, were about two billion dollars. Okay. They were about a two billion dollar industry each in 1976. Fast forward to 2018, 2019, in 2018. The video game industry was about $43 billion, and the music industry was worth about $10 billion. Oh! Dramatic difference, yes. right? So, uh, you know, being a music guy, my first thought is, damn it, why, <laughs> why aren't the musicians making more money? Uh, but there's a whole bunch of economic things in here. My question for you is, do you have any thoughts about why those two might be so different? Drama. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually I think there's part of this is you in, in the graphs that you've you've shown. So you've done some really good research on this. So thank you for that. Uh, is the advent of online gaming made it very easy for people to get those games? But online they still gaming, had to pay for them. They had to pay for them, right? And there was much more. And I think people understand to a certain degree that, wow, me paying, because you in, in arcades, you didn't just get to go up and play a game for free. You always had to put a quarter in. You always had to pay for that. Music, yeah. on the other hand, you could, listen available. To the, you could listen to the radio for free and you got music for free. And so That's when right. it got online, there was a lot of pirating of music. And then, you know, only recently has the Spotify's and the Pandora's, you know, subscription or an advertising model based on that taken taken hold. So I think people's willingness to pay. So when gaming went online, it became easier to access and and I can buy this now and I can do a multiplayer online game. Yeah. And the that actually changes the the game itself when I am playing against you know ten or a hundred or thousands of people, music is still music. Music hasn't changed in its actual right. Or with the advent of ad, of Napster in the late nineties, early two thousands, then there was a sense of well, of course we've always listened to music for free anyway. Yeah. So the fact that we're listening to it for free on our computer versus on a radio station was 
kind of the, a contiguous behavior. It was sort of the same thing that we were doing. So it was sort of almost expected. Right. And again, but, it was but, expected but, to pay for the, the gaming. So that's right. You have right. those factors belonging in there. Yes. All right. I have a question back for you, though. Oh, no. So with the advent of online gaming, music is a big part of those games. And I know that they pay some of the more popular games pay a pretty good price for the music that gets put into them. So has that benefited the music industry and and how so? Or is it only a small select number of musicians that actually get to have their music put into games? Yeah, I don't know the specific statistics around it, but I do know that there's a lot more musicians that are participating in licensing deals because of online games. So they hire, so there's, because of the the vast number of games, let's say compared to Hollywood or compared to movies, right? There are more online games being created than there are movies every okay. year. So there's more opportunities for musicians to get licensing deals with games. And here's my follow-up question on that. Growing up in the 70s and the oh. 80s, and to have your music be kind of like in a commercial or something that, you know, there it's kind of the sellout mentality. Oh, oh yes. Right. There was, I'm not selling out. I am a pure musician. Right. I see today that that doesn't, is that sellout mentality still prevalent? Is it still out there or is the economics of music such that, wow, we don't sell albums anymore. So the way that we make money is yeah. by selling them for a TV commercial or a movie or a video game. Yeah. In the, in the 60s and 70s, it, the bar was very high for, you know, the, for artistic standards. And no way would I let my song become part of a Coca-Cola commercial. That, exactly. would, just be, that would be terrible. Today... That's the way you make money. So, <laughs> so the bar has been dropped dramatically and artistic standards are out the window. And, and I, I think uh, new artists are just happy to have, have their music played anywhere. You know, to get a 10-second spot in a TV show or in a, in a video uh, or on, um, in a video game, of course, those are all really cool opportunities to say, I'm just getting myself out there a little bit more. So... So the theme for Friends. Which was the Rembrandts, a local Minneapolis band. Local Minneapolis band, right? It, yeah. was, it wasn't even a complete song when they, no. they sold it. And then it became like their best hit. And it became, they, they were then, I don't, think they ever became the a, I don't think they ever became a huge national hit, but they toured nationally after that, yeah. which they had never done before. And that was back in, what was that, the 80s, I think? Late so, 80s, early 90s. So yeah. I think that's where it started to, to switch, uh, probably. You, well, I, I could go back even farther with John Sebastian, who wrote the Welcome Back Cotter theme, oh. which was, Welcome Back Cotter was a popular show in the 80s. 70s. 70s, okay. And, um, and John Sebastian was really reluctant to take the gig, because they asked him, would you write a song? 
for this. They, they, they wanted his songwriting feel. And nobody, John Sebastian was in the Love and Spoonful, by the way. Okay, thank you, because I had no idea who he was. So, uh, he, which was a very popular band in the 60s. In the late 70s, he gets asked to write this song, and he was reluctant, but he said, okay, fine. And then as soon as he started collecting the checks, it was like, this is the best thing I ever did. <laughs> it, you know, he even, I, I got to talk to him a few years ago, and he said, hey, the house that I live in, that was built by the Welcome Back Cotter. <laughs> theme that was it so i was like yeah okay it was a good deal well it's economics the economics so so andrew's next book should be on the (laughs) economics of the music industry and explaining economics that way or maybe that's your next book there you go my next book yeah oh man yeah whatever (laughs) (laughs) all right well listeners thank you and make sure to stay on for the bonus track with tim This is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. To summarize what we talked about, we should first note that people are people. We see how status quo bias and the loss aversion linked with status quo bias is so strong that gamers will suffer trying to keep things the way they are. In general, we will do everything that we can to maintain the world as it is, rather than take a risk with the hope of getting things better in the the future. I'm reminded of something that Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw said, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. What Andrew did in the game was to adapt the game for his needs. He noticed that he could become more successful as a bad guy, so he became that. And when his teammate joined the development team, he exploited the rules being... And when his teammate joined the development team, He exploited the rules being rewritten in such a way that advantaged him. Second, as much as we'd like to think that being trustworthy and accumulating wealth are top priorities, they're not. Gamers succeeded with bad reputations and sold products at a loss in order to gain experience points. This is how most of us live our lives. We claim that we'd love to be ethical millionaires, but we rarely trade short-term experiences for long-term gains. All this is related to what researchers call preference reversal. In short, it's like answering the question, what will motivate you one way and acting completely different? It's the say-do gap, and gamers are really no different. And this is a reminder to sales managers everywhere that they should design sales incentives with non-monetary experiences whenever possible. Sales reps will ask more for cash but the greatest motivation will likely come from experiences as rewards, especially when the experiences include things that reps wouldn't spend their own money on. Finally, there is some controversy over whether our online personas are the same as our real-world personalities. In Andrew's case, Kurt and I know him as a trustworthy and honorable guy, but he's also admitted to enjoying playing games the wrong way. But given that our online personas can be more articulate than we are in the real world, it's interesting that trustworthiness, status quo bias, and preference reversal show up very clearly in a game. So now for our groove idea for the week. Think about how gamers are willing to give up wealth in order to have experiences. This is central to the idea that our preferences don't always match our behaviors. So take a few minutes this week to reflect on things that you say are important to you, but that you don't act on. Write them down. Ask yourself what is keeping you from acting in a way that is consistent with your beliefs, and what can you do to align them? We hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Andrew and found our grooving session informative. And as we've noted before, it's not advertisers that drive our podcast, it's you. 
We do rely on good reviews to get our word out, so please take a minute to write a quick review and give us a super quick five-star rating. That would be helpful to Kurt and I as we advance our mission to spread the word about the benefits of applied behavioral science. Thanks, and keep on grooving. Thank you.